Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Welcome to Overnight America with Ryan Recker on KMOX. Sponsored by Michael's Flooring, the flooring experts, michaelsflooringoutlet.com. And welcome to Overnight America. It's going to be a wild show tonight. But it seems like I say that every time. So will it be any more wild relative to anything else we've seen? Probably not. But as always, on Mondays, Richard Bino is going to join us in about 10 minutes. And I love our conversation with him. He'll put a lot of perspective into what we've seen over the past week. And today we saw what was the payoff of what was expected when it comes to Congress uh, implementing more impeachment resolutions looking at, well, I should say resolution, one singular, and they cite the incitement of the Capitol as the reason to file for impeachment yet again. And the incitement of insurrection, Article 1, the Constitution provides that the House of Representatives have, shall have the sole power of impeachment. And they go and talk about their authority to do such uh, high crimes and misdemeanors. And I, I want to go back in to say that that's a pretty big stretch. And even the members of Congress who are going along with this right now have made it pretty clear they're doing this to set a, send a message, set a precedent for future presidents. And that's the reason why they're doing this, not because they believe that uh, it's going to be successful by any means or they'll have time to pull this off or anything like that. Instead, they're making this into a full political move. So it goes on to talk about the events that happened on January 6th, pursuant to the 12th Amendment of the Constitution um, in the months preceding the joint session and regarding the vote that happened at the Capitol building. They decided to talk about what started and then what stopped and started back up again. Uh, the certification of Joe Biden eventually happening. But in between then, there were a couple of uh, objections to a few of the states, one of which I think got the debate was Pennsylvania. That seemed to be the large one. And there were a lot of uh, other congressmen that decided to add their name to the objections, most notably uh, before this all started was Ted Cruz. And then after when they reconvened, you had Josh Hawley, and he seems to be one of the forefront members that has been the uh, like the poster child for all of this. So when it says at the end of the article, wherefore Donald John Trump, 
by such conduct has demonstrated that he will remain a threat to national security, democracy, and the Constitution if allowed to remain in office, and has acted in a manner grossly incompatible uh, with self-governance and the rule of law. Donald John Trump thus warrants impeachment and trial, removal from office, and disqualification hold, and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. So they throw that in at the end, I guess. Maybe in the future they can decide not to allow him to run again, but that has to be a separate thing. I believe it has to be separate from the impeachment. I don't know if they can bundle them together. I'll have to ask Rich Rubino about that. But all that this says to me, and again, it's just so politically charged at the moment, and it's coming from all sides. Donald Trump at the moment is kind of walking down this hypothetical gauntlet where there's just attacks coming from every side and everyone is getting their shots in right now. And they're looking at it and saying, this is my opportunity. We don't like the guy. We don't like the way he acted. We don't like how he handles things. We don't like his speech. We don't like the way he talks. We don't like his tough uh, attitude. We don't like that he unilaterally does things. He don't like any of this. So all of the people that have grievances, much like some of the different people that aired their grievances during that joint session where they talked about the Electoral College. Now this is their time to air that grievance against Donald Trump and then jump into it. And that's kind of what we're seeing. Attacks from all sides. Uh, I think that Democrats are looking to push more. Um, and, and that's the thing. It's it's nine days until the inauguration of Joe Biden. And it's pretty clear that after those nine days, I don't think they'll lit up on Donald Trump. I don't think this is a flogging that they want to just say, all right, now we have this ability to shame him. So we're going to take advantage of this. I think this will be the gift that keeps on giving for the Democrats because they'll be able to use this opportunity against him many times in the future to justify anything that they do. And that's what we have to look forward to, <laughs> which is a tough position to be in. We have this opportunity. I mean, we have this Hey, every time there's something wrong, hey, Donald Trump did it or this or that, that's what we have to look forward to for the rest of time. And if anything, it means that no party is innocent when it comes to uh, hypocrisy. So I think that this is not the ending anyone wanted uh, outside of Nancy Pelosi and them. I think that some that really are hate fueled, they are excited for moments like this. But really, I don't think this is the ending anyone wanted. Um, it's just the reality of what it is. And as they look forward to impeachment, the imminent threats and trying to make their case, I really don't know if this is actually going to go anywhere, but they're going to be able to at least bring up this in more in the next couple of days. And it makes for good interviews to CNN, I guess. Maybe that's why they're doing it. When we come back, we're going to hook up with our friend Rich Rubino. He's the author of American Politics on the Rocks. We join him every Monday, and there's a lot to talk about what happened in the past week. And to put some perspective into it, I asked Rich, what are some of those other times where we've seen violence in D.C., in particular the Capitol building? And he had a couple of different examples. We'll talk about the 25th Amendment. We'll talk about impeachment, the process, um, you know, and just things like that. And put it into historical context. The hard thing is it's really difficult to put it into historical context. But maybe there is one instance that draws some comparison. There is one president that keep bringing up and they'll say this is very similar to Andrew Johnson. So why is that the case? We'll talk to Rich about that coming up next on Overnight America KMOX. Listening to KMOX has never been easier. Siri, play KMOX. He's the author of American Politics on the Rocks and Polita-Geek.com. You can find his work on there. He joins us Mondays. Rich Rabino, how are you? 
I'm doing well. What a uh, week, huh? <laughs> yes. <laughs> One of the uh, most uh, porcellus weeks uh, probably in American uh, political history. It's the thing that we do every single Monday. I say, wow, what a week. And it's you think, OK, that's evergreen. It's been like that for a while. So looking back at the Capitol and what happened in Washington, D.C. was a quite sad moment in American history. And just in general, I, I wanted to get your feelings and emotions as you were watching this happen, given all the history you know about politics. Yes, yes, no, absolutely. The first thing that actually my mind kind of came back to is kind of has this happened in history? And the answer is actually yes. Back in 1932, this was in the high watermark, I guess, if you will, of the Great Depression. There were World War I protesters that did not get their bonuses and wanted to get their bonuses early, so they were essentially camping out um, in Washington, D.C., in front of the Capitol. They called them. They called the little houses that they made Hoovervilles, kind of making fun of the president Herbert Hoover. Now, mind you, this is three months before a presidential election. Herbert Hoover was um, Herbert Hoover ended up losing in a landslide. Only won only won six states that year against uh, Franklin Roosevelt. Eventually, they essentially Senator uh, General MacArthur, General Patton, General Eisenhower, essentially um, you know landed up landed up essentially firing on them, and they had to, they landed up leaving. So that was one thing that came to mind that came to mind. And the other thing was probably back in 1954, when about five Puerto Rican nationalists uh, came into the Capitol and sat in the sat um, in the, sat essentially in the chamber. And then it was, this was during a debate about Puerto Rican statehood. They were advocates for statehood, and they literally started shooting. And they shot about five Congress people, and one of them was wounded seriously. They all ended up living. So those were kind of the things that um, kind of occurred, and that occurred in my mind, just looking historically. But the other thing, I mean, just from a, you know, from a common sense perspective, it's just amazing that if you look at these people, I mean, they've traveled, you know, they traveled from wherever they, wherever they were from, went all the way to Washington, D.C. They had to take an airplane. I mean, this was something that was certainly pre-formulated, that had certainly been in the works uh, for a long period of time that they were going to go to the Capitol. And the other thing was that the adversary was, it may have I mean, certainly was Nancy Pelosi, but it was also Mike Pence. Uh, Mike Pence, who just you know a few weeks ago was in Georgia campaigning with was campaigning for the Republican uh, senatorial nominees, who spent basically the entire year campaigning for Donald Trump around the country. When he said essentially did not um, support Donald, what Donald Trump wanted him to do in his role as the president of the Senate, uh, the they essentially these people who are probably allies of Mike Pence prior to up to it about two weeks ago, he was the one that became um, kind of the political antichrist. So. They really kind of turned on him um, in a dime, but I don't think this is necessarily uh, go- this is not necessarily going away. And I think that certainly during the Biden administration, there certainly will be these same protesters because, you know, Trump is just, Trump may be kind of the patron saint of the movement, but I don't think it's necessarily simply about Trump. And I think that there will certainly be um, certainly many more protests, but I think the, you know certainly there will probably be beefed up um, fortified security uh, for this, and certainly on January 20th, the day which is going to be a um, certainly a um, very pivotal uh, presidential inauguration. Wow. That's an interesting way to look at it. The patron saint of the protest, even though he might. Well, this is what I think about in the future. If anything happens in the future, they're going to point back to him. It's he's going to be like the 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 thing they first think of. Oh, boy, this all started with Donald Trump, even though we've had issues uh, in the past. But 
the other issue is that if you look across uh, across the world right now, this isn't necessarily a yep. uniquely American thing. There are a lot of other countries that are having issues with people coming up and protesting the government where things have turned violent. And I, it's so weird because it was watching the coverage on that day and you're thinking, wow, this is crazy. And then all of a sudden, a dude in a Viking hat is the center of all of it. And you think, of course, why wouldn't a guy yeah. with face paint like it's that Mel Gibson movie, uh, Braveheart, and yes, is wearing yes. a Viking Why wouldn't there be something like that in 2021? The whole thing is just so bizarre. But, you know, I also, thinking historical perspective, you have to, in a sense, put it in context. I mean, certainly did this during the Civil War. They had one of the biggest protests in American history in New York City, for example. Remember, during the Civil War, they were drafting people in the North. They were drafting people in the South. Um, you had these elephantine protests against President Lincoln. And then, remember, also, President Johnson was also very polarizing. Um, in 1964, when he signed the Civil Rights Act, you know, Lady Bird Johnson would campaign in the South. And when she would campaign in the South, it was called the Lady Bird Special. Everywhere she went, there were segregationists holding up signs saying, go back, to ho- go back home, saying your husband's a traitor because he signed the Civil Rights Act and he was from Texas. And then in the second, the last, so that was the first few years, you had the right wing um, segregationists against him. But then the second two years of the presidency, you had a lot of young people who probably would have supported him in 64 and 65, who literally would sit in front of his limousine so that the limousine could not go um, in order to protest his policies in the Vietnam War. It got so bad that in about 67 and 68, uh, with some exceptions, President, the Secret Service told President Johnson that they could only really guarantee his safety if he spoke at VFW halls and if he was on military bases. Wow. Um, so, and now, now, that being said, he did go out and he did actually, now this was, after, this was in October of 68, he did actually campaign for Democrat Hubert Humphrey running to succeed him, but that was about two weeks before um, the actual presidential election, but they did tell him that essentially there are going to be so many protesters. I mean, everywhere he would go, they would be yelling, hey, hey, LBJ, how many boys did you kill today? So if he were to go out and campaign, if he were to go out any place around the country, those people essentially would be there. So, it was, you know, this is not something that is necessarily unprecedented, and there certainly have been other examples, and there certainly have been other lightning rod presidents as well. I wonder if they're going to change the presidential limousine to be more like the Pope mobile because they're going to have to like cover yeah. politicians and just the way that they handle security in the future has to change. I guess looking at some of these examples you just gave, we go back and look at them now. Was there a time where things started to level back off? I mean, there's got to be a moment yeah. where uh, enough time has passed where the tensions aren't as high. Yeah, I think that in terms of the Civil War, so when the Civil War ended in 1865 and there was somewhat of a reproach, I think President Andrew Johnson, who succeeded Andrew, who succeeded uh, Abraham Lincoln, his essential policy was to try to essentially reconcile right away. He wanted to, he tried to pardon, he had a rubber stamp, he just said a pardon, tried to pardon just about everybody who had been a sympathizer with the South. Um, it got to the point that actually by 1877, so there was re- so at Reconstruction there were troops that were essentially um, that were fortifying the South, they were protecting, they were protecting the, they were protecting the South, they were protecting African Americans, for example. They actually made an agreement in the 1876 presidential election, which is very close. Rutherford B. Hayes, the Republican who lost the popular vote and actually lost a majority, and actually Samuel Tilden, the governor of New York, actually won not only a plurality but a majority. And so he landed up winning, and they made a deal in part that the Democrats, the party of Samuel Tilden, would agree to let Rutherford B. Hayes become president in return 
they would bring the troops out of the South. So you had this kind of, you know, perpetual war between the North and the South, um, Democrats being generally the conservative party in this at that time who support in the South and the Republicans becoming kind of the northern and western party, if you will. But in terms of when it actually kind of, you know, came back to homeostasis, I guess, you could probably say during the Hayes administration, you got back to normal issues. And then the, and then the Arthur administration you certainly got back to issues like civil service reform and issues like tariff reform, issues that were not quite as volatile. In terms of the 60s, you know, when you had the civil rights and you had the Vietnam War, the Johnson administration was very, very polarizing. Then Richard Nixon came in. He was also very polarizing. Certainly by the, in 1971, for example, when he expanded the war in Vietnam to try to liquidate the sanctuaries in, um, in, in Cambodia, and there was, there was a moratorium around the, there was a moratorium around the country. But you know what? After, 19, after all the troops left from Vietnam um, and Richard Nixon after Watergate, by the, the latter few years of the, the, lat, the Ford administration and the Carter administration, there was a time for healing. And by 1976, issues that between Carter and Ford became very basic, became very ordinary. You know, they were arguing about inflation. They were arguing about job creation. They weren't necessarily arguing about what's going to happen with all these protesters on the streets, what's going to happen with war. And part of it, too, once the Vietnam War ended, there was kind of not a cause celeb for um, some of the anti-war, anti-war Vietnam protesters. They kind of went home. And there was, you know, during the Carter administration, for example, there was no escalation of military hostilities um, overseas. And then eventually, um, the, certainly, certainly the first few, they certainly once you got into the latter years of the Reagan administration, the latter years of the Clinton administration, you had presidents who were extremely popular. So it does mm-hmm. come back, but it, right now we're kind of at the uh, we're kind of at the low watermark or the low ebb, um, certainly, of a polarizing president. Rich Rabino joins us, his book, American Politics on the Rocks, and his website. You can go and find some other articles, appearances, things like that, polita-geek.com. There's this tweet that was going viral, and it was something I wasn't familiar with in American history. It's, it, it, I just wanted to read it to you, and maybe you can put some context. It says, in 1983, Susan Rosenberg planted a bomb outside the U.S. Senate chambers to assassinate Republican senators. House Judiciary Committee Chairman Representative Jerry Nadler got President Clinton to pardon Susan Rosenberg. So it go back to 1983. What do you know about that incident? Well, I know that it was I know that it was um, that. Well, Jerry Nadler, by the way, so he's still in Congress and he was he's the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. And he did get Bill Clinton to pardon. This is one of the 140 pardons that Bill Clinton made those last few days in office. It's kind of been overshadowed, if you will, by other people who were pardoned and one of them being Mark Rich and then Susan McDougall. But it was, you know, it was kind of a it was kind of a solitary instance. It was something that, you know, got a couple days worth of news coverage. But it certainly did not. Um, it certainly did. It certainly was not raised to the level of the Puerto Rican nationalists, the Bonus Army, or certainly the insurrection of last week. Yeah, and I'm looking at a photograph of it, and there's a good amount of damage done inside. It looks like a lot of uh, furniture was incinerated. I mean, it was it just looks like a bunch of broken lumber on the ground. The walls are still standing, and it looks like some of the photographs are still on the walls, but definitely a lot of damage in that room. Uh, the idea that sometimes these things happen, it's amazing how they get lost to history. It's just, I, I look at this and think, how come I've never heard of this happening? And I'm sure there's a lot of those moments in history that, we just overlook or for whatever reason, don't get a much, uh, don't get a much attention. And I honestly thinking about what's going on in Washington DC today, I feel like this is one of those things they're going to talk about forever. 
I feel like when my kid gets in high school, they're gonna, yep. the classrooms yep. are going to be talking about this. It's going to be in their textbook, and my kid's going to come up to me and ask, hey, what do you remember about this? I feel like it's going to be one of those moments. Yeah, no, absolutely. It, it is interesting how some things kind of, you say, as you say, get lost to history, and it's, that's why it's so fascinating. One of the joy, one of the positive things, I guess you could say, advantageous about the Internet is if you ever follow, a, you know, go to a story and you go back to something that happened in, like, 1973 and you look back and you, you can find that you can find what actually happened. You can also find kind of sub-stories of stuff that happened. Like, I remember looking at one point in, I was looking somewhere about Warren G. Harding, and I kind of stumbled across a 1923 um, newspaper clipping, and it said what, it was about the new White House chef. I remember the headline said White House, it was a picture, of, it was a, actually a drawing of a female, and it said White House chef is not a man. <laughs> so what they meant, what, what, now today we would say there was a, their first female uh, chef, but at the time that was the, way, that was the parlance that they used, and so it actually said White House chef is not a man. And I'm looking at that, and I'm saying, well, that's how they would have phrased it in 1923. Rather than saying this is a female, they said that um, this was a male <laughs> <laughs> well, I find that a lot of times when you go back and look at newspaper clippings and things from different eras, it's amazing the things you can find out, just lost things that were in time documented, but it's probably been a hundred years. Well, what year did you say? 1923? It's this probably 1923, been 1923, yes. Yeah, it's probably been uh, a minimum of 80 years before anyone ever thought of that. <laughs> Maybe I, even 90 I think years. You're... <laughs> I think you're right. It was more the phraseology of it. Um, that's funny, right? As I say phraseology, I'm searching, looking at a book right now. It says the word phraseology. That's bizarre. Um, I guess there's some sort of a message from above. I don't know, but um, yeah. but no, it is it is bizarre how many things. Just I mean, just in, in recent years, for example, you know, go back, for example, in 1964, the United States under President Johnson invaded the Dominican Republic. In 1989, to get Noriega in Panama, the United States invaded Panama. Um, you had the Kosovo invasion in 1998, and this stuff is certainly stuff that is – or what about um, Operation, um, Operation Firefox when Bill Clinton essentially evaded Iraq saying that they were not um, complying with the United Nations uh, agreement for, to, to dismantle their weapons of mass destruction or the bombings or the sanctions in Iraq in the 1990s. This is stuff that – there's recent history, but it's kind of – I think once 9-11 occurred, the 2000 election occurred – and these really kind of polarizing times, that stuff kind of goes by the wayside. And eventually, you know, you kind of look back at it, and then maybe you'll find some sort of a reference to it. And you'll say, oh, yeah, you know, this is something that this is something that did happen at that period of time. And this is something that did happen that did happen during that period of time. I mean, just in the 1950s, well, perfect example. I mean, Harry Truman today is viewed almost reverentially, certainly around the country. But if you go back to his presidency, when he left office, he had a 22% job approval rating. He was the most unpopular president in the history of polling, now if you know you look now, now you you think of Harry Truman and people view him in a very completely different light. So that kind of his unpopularity was kind of in a sense dropped, lost to history. On the other side of that, Warren G. Harding, when he died in 1923, I mean he was viewed almost as a demagogue by some by some in the Amer by some in America. He was a very popular figure. Now you look back on him, if you think of him at all, he's considered one of the worst presidents in American history. At least that's kind of the common conception. So you, know, you do lose a lot of things in history, and sometimes perceptions of individuals and causes certainly transmogrify over time as well. Wow. So after the break, let's talk about Andrew Johnson. And I know yes. you've drawn comparisons in the past, but this will be good to revisit, considering that Donald Trump said he's not going to go to the inauguration. And then the 25th Amendment and impeachment, oh, yeah. more things that are just on the table from the past <laughs> week, which is and some of which were even from today. So let's do that uh, after the break. Rich Rubino, 
polita-geek.com. And if people wanted to find you on social media, what's the best way to look you up? Yep, you can see all my interviews on my Facebook page. Just type in Rich and then last name Rubino, R-U-B-I-N-O, or just go over to Twitter and type in Rich Rubino, P-O-L. We're going to continue with Rich coming up right after the break. We'll look at your weather, too, on Overnight America KMOX. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. News Radio 1120, KMOX, the voice of the Cardinals. And here we are in Overnight America with Rich Rubino. His book, American Politics on the Rocks, politi-geek.com is the website. You can find him online, too. Rich, I know you've made comparisons in the past to Andrew Johnson, but a lot of other people are starting to pick up on that based on the fact that Donald Trump as sitting president would not be attending, or at least announce he will not be attending the inauguration of Joe Biden. So more comparisons to add there. Yes. Well, it's interesting. So Andrew Johnson, he comes in as a point of history in 1865, 1864, he became Abraham Lincoln's running mate. He was trying to show a unity ticket. Johnson had been a Democrat and Johnson was the only Democratic senator from the South who did not secede um, when the, who did not secede during the Civil War. So he, so as a result, Lincoln chose Johnson, but not Johnson was certainly not a supporter of civil rights in many respects. He just was a, somebody who supported the idea of there being a union. He was actually a very racist president, and Grant on the other side was somebody was certainly a, was a Republican, a kind of a protege, if you will, of Abraham Lincoln. And there was an issue during uh, Johnson's administration, actually, which was really kind of the one thing if people remember Andrew Johnson for anything was that he was impeached in part because he violated what was called the Tenure of Office Act. And the Tenure of Office Act said that a president could not fire a cabinet official. He fired Edward Stanton, the Secretary of War, who he inherited uh, from Abraham Lincoln. So there was this impeachment trial, and Grant at the time was somebody who supported uh, the impeachment, and he was somebody who was actually an ally of Mr. Stanton. So Johnson was essentially was impeached for firing him, and um, Grant was somebody who certainly favored the conviction. But during the so at the inauguration, the two absolutely hated each other. So Johnson said he would not attend. There was some sort of a, there was some kind of um, agreement. They were trying to make an agreement at the time that what if they were kind of rode separately and came to, and came. But Johnson said no, I did not want to go. So he basically stayed in the White House. Was actually with his cabinet while Grant was um, taking was Grant while Grant was taking the UFO office. That's the last time a president has not appeared at his successor's inauguration. There were other examples. John Adams despised Thomas Jefferson, had probably the most vitriolic presidential campaign in 1800. Uh, Thomas Jefferson won. John Adams did not attend. The other Adams, John Quincy Adams, absolutely despised John despised Andrew Jackson, his successor, so he did not attend. And interestingly, Martin Van Buren did not attend the president to this, the inauguration of his successor. 
uh, William Henry Harrison in 1841. But history really doesn't know exactly why, because while they were certainly somewhat adversaries and had run against each other, their relationship was certainly not as uh, vitriolic. Um, there was certainly not the amount of vituperation as there was between the other three. I wonder what the answer is. Uh, and that's one of those great mysteries that will yes, it is. forever be unknown. But maybe one day you'll come across a newspaper article with some stipulation that makes sense, and you'll be the first to learn about it in a hundred some years. So, um, I, I you know I also wanted to look at the Twenty Fifth Amendment and then adding oh, yeah. another article of impeachment. So, you know, adding a second article of impeachment after he already went through a trial a year ago, and it was what it almost was a year ago with when they. We're doing yep. this last time at the start of 2020. So when we look at this and we look at the way that they're bringing this up at the very end of his tenure, I want to talk about the 25th Amendment, how it's used, how it's meant to be used, and then them deciding on going to the impeachment route. So maybe we could just go 25th Amendment talk first. Sure. So the 25th Amendment is a gift to the country, I guess, by Senator Birch Bayh from Indiana. This was someone he ran for president, you might remember, in 1976. He actually lost to Dan Quayle when he sought re-election in 1980. So what happened is, when, right after John F. Kennedy's assassination, Lyndon Johnson addressed a joint session of Congress, and behind him was John McCormick, the Speaker of the House from Massachusetts, 72 years old, and the President pro tem of the United States Senate, Carl Hayden from Arizona, 86 years old. And if something were to happen to Johnson, those would be the next two people in line for the presidency. So there was essentially, they realized that there was a blind spot. First of all, the, big, the major blind spot was there was no provision in the United States Constitution for a president to appoint or nominate a successor as vice president if the president were to succeed to the presidency. So they took care of that. That was the main part. And so that's why, for example, in the next administration, when Nixon came in, Spear Wagner ended up resigning. He pled nolo contendere to um, a charge of tax evasion, and Nixon nominated Gerald Ford. Gerald Ford fell through the Senate. Then when Nixon resigned, Ford becomes president, Ford gets Nelson Rockefeller, and Nelson Rockefeller sails for the Senate. So that's the main part. But there's also a provision in there about essentially the incapitation of the president. And they were looking at a blind spot in the Constitution, and they were going back actually based to Woodrow Wilson in 1919. He suffered a stabilitating stroke. He could almost he could literally just barely sign his own name to pieces of legislation. Uh, his wife, Edith Wilson, was very good in terms of making it surreptitious how bad he actually was. They hit a lot. They did not want Thomas Riley Marshall, interestingly, also somebody from Indiana, to assume the presidency. There was one instance where Albert Buffall, a senator from Montana, vociferous uh, adversary of Woodrow Wilson, came to visit Woodrow Wilson at the White House, and he said, I just want you to know we're praying for you, Mr. President. And the president looks at him with his wit and dexterous wit and says, which way, Senator? And then, um, so the senator then says, I think the president is actually has a lot of dexterity. So they're able to fool the country. So they're looking for a provision. So what happens if a president is incapacitated? So they look at this blind spot, and Birch Bayh in the Senate, and Manuel Stellar and the congressman in New York, uh, in the Dem Democrat in New York, who was on the Judiciary Committee, the chairman, wrote this provision saying that if the president were to become incapacitated, if the vice president and at least a half of the cabinet agree, they could essentially, in a sense, depose the president and the vice president becomes the acting president. It was not necessarily met for political improprieties, but it can also be used in that respect. Now, there have been some times when, for example, pre presidents have had to go under anesthesia. Um, for example, President Reagan back in 1983, and then President George W. Bush, um, when he had a colonoscopy, that they actually had, they actually, Dick Cheney and George H.W. Bush, in the two cases, became acting president during that time. 
but it certainly is something that it can be used for an emergency, and certainly if there is a president who's incapacitated, but also if there's a president that has unethical improprieties and you cannot get the impeachment process in time, that is something certainly that is constitutionally permissible because of the amendment. Now, when you say constitutionally permissible, has yes. can you think of any politicians in the past that have tried to call for it to be used the way it's being it's it was proposed by nancy pelosi uh yes but only during that i'm aware of only during the trump administration remember the truly i mean the johnson and nixon were extremely polarizing so this was this was this essentially really started um to take effect really right away and it's amazing that it happened right away because if this provision if, if it were not for birch by and Emmanuel seller when Richard Nixon became president, and then when Richard Nixon resigned, the vice spirit there would not have been a, there would not, not have been a Gerald Ford as the vice president. There would have been Carl Albert. Carl Albert was the Speaker of the House from Oklahoma. He would have succeeded directly to the presidency. He had no ambitions to be the president. But during that time period, after first of all after Spear Wagner resigned and before Gerald Ford became vice president, and then again when Gerald Ford becomes president, and before the Senate confirms Nelson Rockefeller. He was second aligned to the presidency, so as a result, um, the Secret Service actually was out in front of his, of his apartment, both in Washington and his home in Oklahoma, and very few people knew that he was actually, that he knew who, why these people were there, and some people started complaining to the cops, and they thought that it was actually a group of hippies that were out there. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, one other thing I want to talk to you about, and Rich Rubino here with us in polita-geek.com, the website. You can also look up Rich Rubino on social media. But when it comes to impeachment, we're just yes. nine days away from the inauguration of Joe Biden and the end of the Trump presidency. And these articles, the one article, I should say, uh, came up today where they want to go forward with another impeachment. Now, I thought, let me just make sure when it comes to impeachment, the idea is to hold a trial for high crimes and misdemeanors yep. that is meant to, if um, if found guilty, to remove the president. And in this case, there is no way that could happen just based on the timeline. So what do you think, bringing it at this time, the whole process of trying to go through all of this to send a message and knowing that really the whole mechanism that they're using has no time to, you know, cause the clock is going to run up before then. Is there any implications? Like does the trial last after his presidency? Yes, Could there that is happen? actually, okay, there is so actually not for, a, yeah. not for a president, but remember they can also impeach a cabinet officer. And there was William Belknap, who was the, who was the, uh, who was the secretary of war during the presidency of Ulysses S. Grant. And back in 1876, they found that he was charged with some charges of bribery, and he resigned right away on March 2nd of that year. But the United States House of Representatives went ahead with the impeachment. Actually, the chairman of the committee was actually his former college roommate, believe it or not, but they went ahead with the impeachment. They voted unanimously to impeach him. Then it went to the United States Senate, and the United States Senate, a majority of the United States Senate voted to impeach him, but they needed two-thirds. So as a result, he was acquitted even after he had left office. But now the question is, has there ever been talk of a former president being impeached? And the answer is actually yes. So remember, the, I was talking earlier about the Mark Rich pardon. So Mark Rich mm -hmm. was a fugitive, um, and he was a fugitive from justice that Bill Clinton had pardoned on his last day in office. It became a huge imbroglio. And Arlen Specter, the senator from Pennsylvania on the Judiciary Committee, said that there was a possibility that they could potentially impeach um, Bill Clinton for, the, for that. Um, other people, Don Nichols, for example, the senator from Oklahoma, the, the, the majority whip, 
said that potentially maybe they could potentially take a president's pension away, something to that effect. But that's another thing that somewhat has been lost to history. But it certainly is constitutional, and it certainly can happen that you can impeach him. So I don't think I don't think anybody reasonable person is actually saying they're going to impeach and convict him quite that fast. But there could potentially be an impeachment, and it could certainly last into the next administration. And the question is, if they then have to have a trial, you know, that's something that certainly would take away from the first 100 days of Joe Biden's legislative agenda if they're spending an inordinate amount of time trying a former president versus, you know, trying to get his economic, his economic program through. So Joe Biden has been very improvident in terms of this. He's been saying essentially that's the Congress's responsibility, but that's certainly something that could hamper his ability, his legislative ability. Oh, that's interesting. I, I really didn't think of it that way. Could they drag it out essentially with the Republicans not really having the majority in the Senate and they can say, all right, fine, we'll just drag this whole process out and then yep. you won't be able to get any other business done? Well, I mean, the, Democrat, the Democrats would have the majority, so they could um, – it, it was something that actually probably would disbenefit them because, they, I mean, they obviously have a majority in the both houses. I think it would be, they, probably, they could probably do – in the House do it relatively quickly and then it would go to the United States Senate – um, they'd have to do something about the timetable. I remember, for example, during the Clinton impeachment, they made a deal so that, you know, essentially Justice Rehnquist, the time of Chief Justice of the United States, could spend some of his time actually working on the Supreme Court. He didn't have to spend all day long um, actually being in, being essentially, you know, just essentially an arbiter saying, I recognize, you know, the senator from Mississippi and um, sitting in the chair and making very few rulings. But it is something that could actually hamper his agenda. But what's interesting this time around is I think you actually do will have Republicans Last time around in the Senate, you only had Mitt Romney. Um, this time around, you're probably going to have universal support within the Democratic caucus, and then you're probably going to have some Republicans supporting it as well, which would probably lend some gravitas to um, to to the Democrats for as opposed to hearing the hearing you know people on the on the right saying that well this is a completely um, partisan effort if they actually get Republicans, someone like Pat Toomey, for example, who suggests he should resign. Pat Toomey himself is not up for re-election in 2022. So he's somebody that probably does not have political ambitions beyond this. Mitt Romney would be another one. Susan Collins from Maine potentially would be another one. So if they could get potentially bipartisan support for an actual conviction, it would be very hard, by the way, to get the actual requisite two-thirds to get him actually convicted in the United States Senate. But just I think it's more looking toward history that they're probably thinking more so than anything else. So if people wanted to find you online, things you're doing, one more time, where can they look for you? Yep, just go to uh, Facebook and type in uh, Rich, R, and then last name R-U-B-I-N-O, and you can see my interviews uh, there, or just go to Rich Rubino Paul or www.polita-geek.com. Wow, testing a lot of hypotheses or hypotheses <laughs> or whatever, because there's a lot of potential things that can could happen that are unprecedented. It's really crazy, right? So Rich Rubino, American Politics on the Rocks, polita-geek.com. Thank you so much for coming on tonight to Overnight America. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it, Ryan. And he joins us on the Bomberito Automotive Group guest line on Overnight America KMOX. This is Overnight America, sponsored by Michael's Flooring, the flooring experts. Michael'sFlooringOutlet.com on KMOX. With Overnight America, every weeknight, you never know what you're going to get at night, honestly. <laughs> I mean, anything could happen at any time, go in any direction. That's one of the wild things at night. You just kind of have to keep an eye out and know that whatever happened during the day, we get the first crack at it in many respects. And I saw this happen from earlier today, and I know that uh, a lot of people do follow KMOX Sports 
very big footprint online. Blues will host frontline workers at Enterprise Center for their first uh, home games, which is really cool. So in January at Enterprise Center, a few hundred fans will be allowed inside. Most of them will be local frontline workers. So Enterprise Center limits the number of those invited, along with family and friends, hockey staff, team employees, players, you know, things like that, essential personnel. And the Blues will open up on Monday, January 18th against the San Jose Sharks. That's a week from tonight. And they're going to have special invites to the healthcare professionals and first responders, which is pretty cool. And even going to the Blues on Twitter and seeing some of the highlights from some of their scrimmages and games, it's nice to know that hockey is going to be back. Man, and I think the national football game, the, the championship game is being played between Alabama and Ohio State right now. Let me just mention this. I grew up in Michigan, but I worked in Ohio for a while. And when I was working in Ohio, I didn't realize just how hated Michigan was by Ohio State fans. Like, uh, and it's so strange because in Michigan, you're like, okay, Michigan's cool. They're good. Uh, they had a great team in the 90s. And just in the general, you think, okay, you know, they have rivalries, Ohio State being one of them. And that's just the way it is. And then I went down and lived in Ohio and I saw what it was like from the other side. And the other side was like, if one of my family members admitted to me that they were a Michigan fan, I would kick them out of the house and never talk to them again. In fact, I would cut them out of the will and I, I would make sure that in the untimely passing of myself, there would be someone that I would hire and prepay to go up to that person and punch them in the nose as one of my last wishes. That's like the Ohio State mentality. And if you think I'm exaggerating, <laughs> that's exactly what it is. If you think Phillies fans are crazy when it comes to their home teams, you haven't met an Ohio State fan. And right now, just watching the game. So quick spoiler alert, OK, uh, it's getting close to halftime. And Alabama's up 35-17. Who boy. Well, uh, that's just where it is online. I'm not actually watching the game. But when I look at this, I think, okay, you know, as much as I like Ohio State people, because I made a lot of friends when I lived in Ohio, um, the one thing I can't stand right now after everything else that's being posted on social media, everything's political. The one thing that would just top it off for me to delete all my accounts is to see a bunch of people bragging about Ohio State. I'm sorry. I, it would tip me over and I just wouldn't be able to look on the computer anymore. So at least this is a small counterbalance that gives me just a little bit of incentive to keep Facebook open a little bit longer. And I hate Facebook, by the way. I, I don't like any of these social media networks. I did a live video on Sunday. If you haven't seen this, that I'd say this. I say I have mixed reactions. I feel like the only mechanism I have right now is to post these gripe videos on Facebook, which is a platform I can't stand anymore. I don't know what I'm doing. I, I really don't know what to do. It's just such a weird position to be in right now. It's like, do I want to contribute to this stuff? Luckily, we have each other here on KMOX and 1120 AM and the podcast you can download and listen to. So happy that we at least have this connection where we don't have to rely on all these other things, which is something that a lot of other people have to rely on. They have to go to Facebook or Twitter in order to get anyone to listen to them or to have an audience. I'm, I'm just fortunate in that sense. Oh, you saw this too. I don't know if you uh, looked at this, but you know, good for the blues to add the stipulation that they'll be inviting some frontline workers, healthcare providers, things like that. It's just so cool. Well, healthcare workers, I should say. Another thing, St. Louis blue, Jay Bomeister retires after 17 years and or 17 year career, I should say. 
played a lot of games. Great, great player. A couple of times he was an all-star during his career. Go back and look at it. He won the cup here in St. Louis, and there's great photographs of him holding it up. One of the things that is really shocking, and I had to remember back almost a year ago when we were doing the show, and we started to get the news that he collapsed in Anaheim. What a wild and terrible night. And I remember we had phone calls from California. I remember we had even listeners to KMOX who just happened to be at the game in Anaheim that were there and gave us first accounts of what they saw and what they witnessed. Such a scary night. But, you know, the lucky thing and the good thing for him is he had a long, great, well-celebrated career. He gets his name on the cup. Jay Bomeister retiring. Much love to him. In the next hour, I want to talk about the Boise man who stormed the Capitol building and now is asking for forgiveness. Do you give those people forgiveness? It's an interesting question. It's Overnight America, KMOX. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.